Welcome to today's podcast of Pursuing Justice. I am Harriet Hindell. We've learned that there happens to be another podcast with the same name, so we have changed our title to Pursuing Justice. For the next four podcasts, I will have three guests. As I mentioned in my last podcast, I had hoped to focus on a case that dates back to 1976, which took place in Jacksonville, Florida. Two men, an uncle and his nephew, were wrongly accused of murder. Their names were Clifford Williams Jr. and Hubert Nathan Myers. They spent 43 years behind bars as innocent men. And in March of 2019, they walked out of prison thanks to the tireless work and collaboration of the Innocence Project of Florida and the brand new Conviction Integrity Unit, which is based in Jacksonville. My guests over these next few podcasts will be Shelley Thibodeau, director of the Conviction Integrity Unit, Krista Dolan, one of two lawyers from the Innocence Project of Florida, and Nathan Myers, who was the nephew in the case and 18 years old at the time of his arrest when he was sentenced to life in prison. And now I would like to introduce you to Shelley Thibodeau, um, who is the director of the Conviction Integrity Unit, the first one of its kind in the state of Florida. As director, she played a key role in the Williams-Myers case. Before we delve into that case, Shelley, would you tell us a little bit about the mission and the makeup of a Conviction Integrity Unit and a little bit about your job? Yes, thank you, Harriet. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak to you for a few minutes this afternoon about conviction integrity. So conviction integrity units are housed within state attorney's offices, and we act like an in-house innocence project. And you've already mentioned briefly the innocence project. For your listeners who are not familiar with the innocence project, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck came up with this concept that if DNA, which at that time was a relatively novel um, piece of evidence, could be used to convict people of crimes such as sexual batteries and homicides, that the reverse would apply, that DNA could be used to exonerate those who um, were making innocence claims, you know, those who were convicted but said that they had been wrongfully convicted. And so as that concept spread, it's now um, been incorporated within some state attorney's offices across the country. So currently there are about 50 conviction integrity units across the country. Um, when Melissa Nelson was elected in uh, 2016 here locally, she decided that she was going to create a conviction integrity unit within our office. And um, I then started in January of 2018. And at that time, there were no conviction integrity units within the state of Florida. So in essence, you know, we sort of created the concept here in Florida for, for what we were going to do. And while some conviction integrity units across the country 
look at both innocence claims and due process violations. Our office is strictly looking at um, innocence claims. And so the way that works is if someone's been convicted and they claim that they were wrongly con convicted and in, in fact were innocent of having committed the crime for which they were convicted, they can petition my office and request a review of their case. And so although we were established in January of 2018, there are now four conviction integrity units around the state of Florida. Um, Tampa has a unit, Orlando, and most recently Fort Lauderdale. And while Miami doesn't have a designated conviction integrity unit per se, they have apparently a policy or a procedure for looking at innocence claims. And so the, the concept is, is certainly spreading. Um, and um, when I first started in, in January of 2018, there were 33 units. And, and like I said, there are now 50. And interestingly, I get calls you know, quite often from other uh, state attorney's offices around the state you know, asking how we, how we got started, you know, what's the process and procedure. And so other units are, are looking at establishing units as well. And why did you choose the law? as your career? You know, um, I am first the first person in my family to become a lawyer. And so I, um, you know, I, I don't know that I had a, a real specific reason for going to law school initially. But what happened while I was in law school, there was a children's advocacy center clinic at FSU. And I volunteered for the children's advocacy clinic. And what they did at that time is they paired you as a student with a juvenile case, you know, somebody, a child that was going through juvenile court. And I represented a young man, a, a teenager, who was arrested for skateboarding on school grounds. And hmm. my 20, probably two-year-old self really <laughs> had a hard time understanding how a 14-year-old could be arrested for skateboarding on school grounds. And... Um, so ultimately what happened in that case is the, the young man told me that he didn't think he was actually on school grounds, that the sidewalk that he was skateboarding on he thought was not considered school grounds. Um, I went out to the scene. I looked at it. And then ultimately I went, you know, back then you didn't have computer-ready computer access. I went to, the, to City Hall and I pulled the plat. And the sidewalk that he was on was not, in fact, school grounds. And so I got that case dropped. And, you know, that whole experience for me just, um, you know, gave me, I don't know if it's the bug, but <laughs> I, I then decided that I wanted to handle, you know, criminal cases. And I, I wanted to represent people who had been charged with um, crimes. And it, it's really been a fascinating career. I, I've loved every minute of it. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, all right. So now we have a little idea of the Conviction Integrity Unit, uh, their origins and what they do. Um, before we get into the case itself that we're going to talk about, um, can you tell, I, I did give some background on the Innocence Project and the Innocence Movement uh, in a previous podcast, but what would you say would be the difference between an Innocence Project uh, where we know there are approximately 70 in the states and around the world now. 
um, and a conviction integrity unit? You know, I, I think probably the process is very similar. Where, where the state attorney's office conviction integrity unit has an advantage is that I have ready access to, you know, all of the information that I need. So if you're an innocence project or, or somebody that works outside of the state attorney's office, to get information, typically what you're doing is you're submitting a public records request. And then the state attorney's office pulls their file and they make a copy of it and they send it to you. And, you know, while the fee is relatively minimal, there is a fee for that. Um, and, you know, so if you're a defendant in prison, you may not be able to afford the fee that comes that's associated with that. Now, innocence projects in the, in the, of themselves can typically afford the fee, but it's a process. So, you know, I am able to go and I, I get the file out of storage and I start looking through it and I'm not having to wait on a public records request. And then, of course, our office, you know, typically has um, a relationship with law enforcement and I'm able to pull or request that law enforcement pull their file. Um, if there's something that's still in property, I'm able to go to the property room and, and look at the evidence. You know, we have a relationship with the clerk's office, and sometimes evidence is um, stored at the clerk's office. And so certainly my ability to access information is, is much different, and I would think easier to access yeah. than, you know, one of the innocence organizations. And so I, I think that's um, mm. a, a really significant, yeah. you know, piece. And, you know, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, it sounds that way because I have heard our executive director talk about how difficult it is sometimes to get, um, whether it's DNA or anything, that the delay, he has to go back to court, and time is going by. And you're describing something that is much speedier. So that's, that's an interesting difference. I didn't know that myself. So the case itself, how was the Williams-Myers case picked up? by the CIU. Okay, so when Melissa Nelson was elected and started in January of 2017, there, the Times Union, which is our local newspaper, ran, I think, two articles discussing, um, you know, what was, on, what was her plat, plat, platform going to be and the fact that she was thinking about starting a conviction integrity unit. And so the, the way I understand the story from Mr. Myers is that one of his friends um, in, in custody with him saw the newspaper article in the Florida Times Union and then passed it to him and, and you know, brought his attention to the fact that Melissa Nelson was considering starting a conviction integrity in it. So based upon that article, Mr. Myers then wrote our office a four-page letter sort of setting forth you know, his position, what his claims were. So when I started in January of 2018, this letter that Mr. Myers had written in 2017 had been here in the office for many months, mm. in addition to 80 other letters. So when I started, there were 80 letters, you know, 80 people who had written mm. and were waiting for the unit to get started. And so I just started reading, <laughs> I started reading letters and trying to process you know, how we were going to manage, you know, this, um, what our policies and procedures were going to look like, 
But, you know, I, as I came across Mr. Meyer's letter, the, the tone and tenor of it was particularly striking to me. Um, you know, as a, as a former criminal defense attorney, what he was saying rang true to me. It made sense to me. It was very logical. Um, and I was thinking to myself, you know, certainly if what he is saying is true, if there's, some, you know, credibility and some veracity to what he was saying, that this could be, you know, problematic and certainly something that would fall within, you know, our policies. So were you, I started oh, investigating ahead. it. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised or shocked at how long by the time he wrote in 2017 he had been behind bars? Well, certainly. I uh, was born in 1970, and so I was six at the <laughs> right. time, right, that Mr. Myers was convicted. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm now pushing 50 myself. And so I, you know, so I look at it as almost my entire lifetime, That's Mr. Right. Williams and Mr. Myers, you know, were in prison. So he, he writes to the Conviction Integrity Unit. The letter sits there for a while because you hadn't actually gotten started. And then what, what were the next steps as you um, decided to go ahead and uh, work on the case? So in his case, as in with all of the cases that we're reviewing, you know, my next step is to look at, so what, so what I do, if there's something that, you know, grabs my attention in the letter. So right now what we're doing is we're receiving letters. We receive letters from typically it's inmates around the state of Florida, write us letters. Mm -hmm. um, surprisingly, you know, I anticipated originally that I would hear from defense counsel, but that hasn't really been the case. I, I've probably had a, a dozen cases or less that have been initiated by defense counsel. So typically what's happening is I'm getting a letter from an inmate and the majority of those letters aren't giving me enough information for me to make a decision as to whether or not it's something that I can pursue. So I have come up with a petition, so to speak, that I then send back to the inmate and I ask them to fill out the petition to give me more detail, you know, um, you know what I'm specifically looking for. So by the time these gentlemen, and, and it's typically men, although there have been a few women, by the time these individuals are writing to me, they've been in custody for, you know, a lengthy period of time. And their mind, you know, what they're thinking is post-conviction, you know, case law, post-conviction. And they have a really hard time getting away from the legal aspects of things. And what I'm really wanting to know is the innocence side of it. You know, so, so you don't have to tell me about the suppression motion or um, the motion to dismiss that was filed or, you know, these, these legal aspects. I really want to know, you know, if, if you were accused of a homicide and you didn't do it, you know, where were you? What were you doing? How did you get arrested? How did your name even get into, you know, this whole thing? Um, I, I'm, I'm more interested in the facts of the case and the circumstances than I am the legality of it. I see. And so, but because, right, they're having to convince courts um, that, that something happened improper legally in their case, that's where they're normally coming from when they write me the first letter. So I write them back and I ask them to fill out the petition to try to get more information that I'm looking for. And then if I think, 
all right, this is something. So in Mr. Meyer's case, I was like, all right. What he had said to me was um, I had some alibi witnesses that weren't called at my trial. There was some physical evidence that uh, exculpated me that wasn't brought up at my trial. And 20 years after the fact, I have information that somebody else could confess to the crime that I was supposed to have committed. And so sort of the trifecta, right? But so then I started looking to see, all right, Mr. Myers, you claim that you have alibi witnesses that weren't called at your trial and that none of the physical evidence was discussed at trial. So I then started reading the trial transcript. And I went through the trial transcript to to figure out what, in fact, had the state um, used at trial against him and and Mr. Williams. Um, Were, in fact, the alibi witnesses not called? Was none of the physical evidence that he discussed in his paperwork um, not presented to the jury? Um, And so I I do all of that kind of deep dive and background um, information. Uh, read the trial transcripts, read all of the post-conviction motions that have been filed. Um, And in Mr. Meyer's situation, in fact, what he was telling me appeared to be, you know, correct, accurate, that um, if, in fact, he had alibi witnesses, they weren't called at his trial. None of the physical evidence was presented at trial. Um, And so then we decided that he met, you know, our guidelines for reinvestigation and that we were going to start reinvestigating his situation. Very interesting. And you mentioned, I guess, that he mentioned that someone had confessed um, some years back. Was that accurate also? Well, so the information that he originally provided to me was an affidavit Mm -hmm. that had been prepared and signed by a fellow inmate. And so the fellow inmate had told apparently Mr. Myers that somebody had confessed to me that they had committed the crime for which you're serving a life sentence. And that gentleman had put the information, you know, down in writing and had signed it and and provided an affidavit. So at that point in time, I certainly didn't know if the validity of that or if if that was credible information, but it was something um, for me to consider. True. All right. Very, very interesting how how you approach a case. And here is a case that's 40 some years old. And you would think it would be very difficult to go back in time uh, over a case like that and be able to reconstruct uh, the case itself. Um, is you, you talk about um, what you've done um, as, as you go along? I guess you will find ways to improve um, how you approach or how you investigate a case. And you mentioned the petition. Um, have you added anything else to uh, the approach to a, a brand new case? You know, th- this process still feels very fluid to me. Um, it is sort of, you know, just, you know, <laughs> it's like trial by error. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting that you ask that question because we were discussing, I have an investigator that's assigned to me and um, an assistant. And we were actually talking about um, revamping the petition that we send out to oh. inmates, you know, just this past week that, you know, now a year or so has gone by where we've been using the same petition 
and I'm still not for some reason getting the information that I'm really wanting to get. And so we're, we're in the process of revamping the petition to try to see if we can't really focus, you know, them on the information that we think is, is particularly pertinent. Um, Because, you know, inmates, they had this tendency to, you know, write a letter that just basically says I'm innocent and Mm -hmm. please help me. And and regrettably, that doesn't give me enough information to really know where to go. Um, The the really beautiful thing about Mr. Meyer's letter was that he was able, you know, he just had the ability to provide me a lot of information that I could use to get the ball rolling. What what amazes me, and I've read quite a bit about the case uh, in many different newspaper articles and the uh, National Registry of Exonerations, a wonderful website for our listeners. Um, They go through an entire case of innocence uh, from start to finish. And uh, so I've read that version, too. Um, But it is amazing uh, the the differences in each case, uh, the similarities in each case, um, they all have their unique stamp and how long it takes to unravel uh, a case, especially in so many of these cases are decades old. It's so rare that you're in prison for a year or two and um, you're saying, I didn't do this uh, Often these are very old cases, so it's that's a, a tremendous challenge. Um, I I wondered um, if how long would you say it took to unravel the case? And I was also wondering as you were talking about reading all the transcripts, how how many pages uh, would you have gotten on a case like this that you would have to read and go through? We were really lucky in um, the Williams and Myers case, but I guess you know you you touch on a really interesting point also, um, and and you mentioned the the National Registry of Exonerations, and for your listeners who are interested in this you know this topic this space, there is a lot of information on the National um, Registry, and I would um, suggest that people get on their website. You can look at, you know, you can type on different states. You know, if, if you're from Florida, you can go to Florida. And I was just on the registry the other day. There have been 57 exonerations in the state of Florida. Um, oh, the, Harriet, you know these numbers probably better than I do. Maybe, you know, 27 of those are death row cases. Um, I think we have the, the most, Florida has the most death row exonerations of any state. I think I mean, that's true. Really, some really fascinating information on that website. And, and when I was, you know, thinking about how I was going to approach these cases, you know, I was looking at material like that. And, and so what's really interesting, what's come out of the Innocence Project work and the National Registry's work, and you may have touched on this already, is that we keep seeing, you know, over and over the same types of issues arise. And so now there are the six categories um, you know, the eyewitness misidentification, mm-hmm. the false confessions and false confessions. You know, I always have such a hard time myself, you know, getting my mind wrapped around how does somebody confess to, right. you know, a homicide, you know, having killed somebody if they didn't do it. And yet we know it happens and sure. we know it happens because of all of the great work 
that was being done, you know, through the Innocence Project and other innocence organizations. So when DNA exonerates somebody of a homicide, you know, then they look to see, well, if the person didn't do it and we know that they didn't do it through the DNA results, you know, what happened? And then they, they look and they kept seeing over and over, we've got these eyewitness misidentifications. In a quarter of the cases, there's a confession, but we know the person didn't do it, so it's a false confession. Um, you know, government misconduct, so whether or not Brady material was not turned over or, um, you know, whatever that might be, ineffective assistance of defense counsel. You know, now we've got misapplied forensic science, you know, like the arson um, and bite marks and hair analysis. Junk, and junk science. Is the, the junk, now right, the junk right. science. And, you know, I guess lastly is incentivized informants where you've the got the jailhouse snitch right. That's right. who is, is looking at a very lengthy sentence and, you know, they come forward, you know, the, I was in a cell with so-and-so and he confessed to me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, right. um, but the really interesting thing is that we see these patterns, right, over and over. So that we, so I'm even looking at, right, when somebody's telling me I'm innocent and they're trying to explain it to me, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, does, does this fit? And they don't always fit into the six categories, but does this fit into the six categories? Is there, is there somewhere where I can go with what this individual is telling me? You know, if they're telling me that there was an eyewitness who identified me, but she couldn't have identified me because I was in Alaska or whatever the it is, I, I start thinking to myself, okay, you know, do we have an eyewitness misidentification case here? Or, you know, there, I'm, I'm working on a case where I'm, you know, concerned that there might be a false confession. And so I start thinking in terms of these six categories that we see over and over. And I'm also eliminating you know, some things based on that, too. So that it, that work and information that's come out of that has been really helpful to me. So when you were asking as part of my process, you know, that's what I'm also doing. Yeah. And um, your listeners can go to uh, the Innocence Project has a stats, you know, sort of like a fast facts page on their website. And the, the National Registry of Exoneration has some really interesting facts, too. Oh, one one fact that I just looked at yesterday when I was looking at their website is that there were 151 exonerations across the country in 2018, and like 56 of them came out of uh, the work of Conviction Integrity Units. Isn't that and, interesting? Wow. Yeah, That's it really is. Yeah. And well, so you were also talking about you know the cases being old and, and what challenges you know, that raises, and that was a real challenge in the, the Myers and Williams think. case, sure. right? Given the fact that it's 40 years old. 40, over 40 and... years old. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, so, Shelly, what, what I would, I hate to interrupt you. What I'd love to do is have you come back and let's continue our conversation. There's still more I'd like to ask you about the case. So if, are you able to come back so we can do another interview, another part of the interview? I'd love to. That would be great. Thank you so much for the invitation. That's wonderful. All right. Thank you for your time today. And uh, we hope our listeners tune in to your next interview. Thank you so much. Thank you.